Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. Got uh, three students that I've had here before, more than once now. And uh, Brandon, this is uh, closing in on the culmination of a very large project that you took on almost four weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, if I understand this correctly, initially we were talking about treatment-resistant depression, kind of an algorithm for tackling that, something that primary care physicians might use as they are um, helping patients who struggle with depression. We know that depression doesn't just respond the first time you treat somebody. In fact, the response rates are not nearly what we would hope. And so you quite often end up in this dilemma of what do I do next? Add, switch, combine, give up, mm -hmm. and so forth, right? So this ended up being a huge project and we're closing in on the end. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about what today? Uh, Augmentation of treatment with atypical antipsychotics. Very, very nice. And I think there are four medications that have FDA approvals that we found uh -huh. in treatment of um, depression. Yeah. And what are those? We got olanzapine, which is Iprexa, aripiprazole, which is Abilify, Brexpiprazole, which is, how do you pronounce that one? Rexulti. Rexulti. And quetiapine, which is Seroquel. Excellent. And before we start, um, high yield principles. What kinds of things get tested on with regards to use of antipsychotic medications in treatment of depression? What, what are the things that seem to be important to remember? In the specific context of treatment for depression, you don't really see that on in the study materials for your third and fourth year, but you do see antipsychotics show up and you know, for other reasons, but generally what they're asking about is side effects. That's the most high yield thing with these medications. Okay. On that note, then this podcast becomes somewhat less about the exams and somewhat more about building the basis of the different medications that are used in treatment resistant depression. And then with the kind of basis of that, we'll talk in the next podcast about treatment of treatment resistant depression. Does mm -hmm. that sound about right? Yep. All right, so uh, let's start off. First medication on that list is olanzapine that I think you said. Right. And, and this is a little bit unique for one reason that I found, and that is that um, the package insert says that it's only indicated with fluoxetine. So this is a combo pill, right? This is something that Eli Lilly marketed a number of years ago putting the two of their molecules together mm -hmm. and only did the studies with those two molecules. And I believe that's different than the other medications. Well, the way I understood the algorithm is once you get up to this line of treatment, you are just trying to find a combination of SSRI and atypical antipsychotic that work together. And I guess it sounds like there's previous work done that shows that olanzapine works well with fluoxetine. Yeah, this was a specific set of studies that were done originally uh -huh. with olanzapine only and fluoxetine only. Uh -huh. And I suspect it had something to do with Eli Lilly hoping to extend patents or hoping to sell two medications that um, could both be used together in a way that that uh, probably had some sort of pro profit motive with it. Mm -hmm. So they, they were studied together and then sold together. And I believe the other medications that we're going to talk about don't have package insert labeling with specific SSRIs. They're more general. Right. All right. Anything else that stood out to any of you guys as you were reading through, um, as you were reading through the, the material for this podcast? Um, well, I, like I said, I focused primarily on 
side effects. And the lanzapine is kind of unique from the others because it can cause uh, metabolic changes to the, the metabolic panel. And yeah. so you want to be looking out for those. Sounds like the other antipsychotics can do that as well, but this one is particularly prone to having this concern. I'm going to back up a second. I did something really terrible with this podcast. I forgot to introduce you three. <laughs> Brandon, you want to start? Yeah, I'm Brandon Trujillo. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Rocky Vista. And today is your last day on the rotation and perhaps even your last couple of hours, right, yeah. winding down. And I'm Natalie Pratt, fourth-year medical student. And also last day, last few hours. Very good. It's been great having the two of you here. And I'm uh, Cam Meekum, fourth-year medical student, and just started again this past week. And it's good to have you back. Very, great very to good. To be back. Uh, so I want to I back up on something you said. You said uh, labs that show up on a metabolic panel. Names of labs change over time, and most recently the basic metabolic panel was a list of mostly electrolytes that show up in the blood. And so when I, when I think you mean show up on metabolic labs, I think you're meaning cholesterol, uh, right. diabetes kinds of assessment labs or blood glucose. Right. And my, my apologies uh, if I use the wrong nomenclature. I'm referring to <laughs> you know, lipids, and blood sugar, and Correct. whatnot. No, I think I understood what you meant. And I just wanted to make sure there wasn't uh -huh. confusion on, the, uh, on my side. All right, so side effects, uh, the, the m metabolic issues associated with this medication are pretty significant. Mm -hmm. And I think in the previous podcast, we've talked about monitoring using the American Diabetic Association guidelines of antipsychotic medications. So measuring waist circumference, uh, measuring blood pressure consistently, measuring lipids consistently, me measuring fasting blood glu glucose consistently, measuring weight consistently, and doing that based on the, the protocols that they've set out. Sedation, does that show up on your list as well? Or orthostasis, sometimes we see those things here, but I'm not sure that they reach the threshold of, hey, watch out for this. Uh, they seem to be a, um, a theme of the entire class of medication. It's not necessarily specific to olanzapine. All right, so high yield is, remember, olanzapine causes weight gain. Right. And, yeah. And and so, so does clozapine, but that's not in our discussion today. <laughs> 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 but those are the, the ones I think of when I think of antipsychotics causing weight gain. All right, so Zyprexa is a full dopamine antagonist. The other medication on this, this list that is a full dopamine antagonist is Seroquel or Quetiapine. Yeah, tell me what, what is high yield about this molecule or medication? Quetiapine. Uh, is good at making you tired. <laughs> and I've seen it used for that reason before. Yeah, I, I once heard somebody say, hey, this is a great sleep aid, and I was cringing because I thought, yeah, but it, you could get tardive dyskinesia with this, you, <laughs> could, you could have metabolic syndrome with this, what we call the elevation in lipids and, and uh, fasting glucose, and the associated problems with that. And I was thinking, I, I, I don't know, is there a good sleep aid if that's, if that's what we're using? I think that's... <laughs> Uh, not uncommon to see it used that way. Though. Sleep, uh, treating sleep dysfunction like depression is challenging and oftentimes things just don't work. So it's very, very difficult. They could have found their way down to quetiapine after everything else failed. So. Yeah, and, and it would be hopefully at that point um, augmentation of an SSRI for depression as well, mm -hmm. right? Because then you're within the label more effectively. I think in the past we've talked about how side effects of medications can be used 
um, in questions and principles that are tested, right? So in this case, if somebody has depression and having difficulty sleeping, they haven't responded to first, second, or third line treatments, this would be maybe one of those options. Mm -hmm. um, anything else with Seroquel or Quetiapine? I also think about metabolic syndrome being somewhat worse with this medication than uh, the later molecules in the class, uh, such as Zeprazidone um, and uh, Lorazidone, but also not quite as significant as Clozapine. Right? Um, I, I don't have anything specific to add about Quetiapine other than I've, used it, I've seen it used quite a bit. It's, it's yeah. a common one. It really is. It's, it's very often used. I, I think at one point, though, most of the scripts were not even for schizophrenia. They were for off-label uses, and I think um, it probably has a, a great ability to augment antidepressant medications. Going down a rabbit hole here, I understood at one point that one of the metabolites, norquetiapine, was uh, either an NRI, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, or an SRI, mm -hmm. serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and I don't know if you ran across anything along those lines. I didn't. You guys really so I, one of those things that I may have you know, believed I learned and not, not <laughs> accurate. Uh, next medication on the list is uh, a partial antagonist. Mm -hmm. Aripiprazole. Aripiprazole. And this thing has a lot of advertising. I think I don't, I don't ever watch TV, and I still <laughs> see this thing advertised on TV. Yeah, Abilify. Abilify. Yeah. Tell me about Abilify or Aripiprazole. What do we need to know about it? Well, it, it, like we were saying, it's a partial, and it's a partial agonist at some of the receptors that atypical antipsychotics routinely work on, such as D2. It partially uh, agonizes that. Well, partially antagonizes, antagonizes, partially agonizes, right. yeah. And then the 5-HT1A agonist activity as well. But it still antagonizes 5-HT2A, which is um, more of a target for many of the atypical antipsychotics. Seems to be associated with the negative symptoms, whether that story's been fully clarified uh, is uh, something I'm not as sure about. Uh -huh. And there also seems to be maybe some antipsychotic activity there, but again, something that's not as clear to me. Yeah, so I guess when I was doing my research, one of the things I was wondering about was, it's unique in this way. Why as doctors, why as uh, you know, prescribers do we care, right? How does this affect differently than the other medications do? And I don't know the answer to that. Mm. So I, so I think I do. Um, do you remember us talking about the different tracks that are associated with uh, schizophrenia and treatment with antipsychotics? I think we talked about the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. We talked about the, the um, tubulo-infundibular. Tubulo we talked mesolimbic. And then we also talked about one other one, which is the, did I say dorsolateral prefrontal cortex? or So anyway, there's, there's four pathways, and we think that when we use the dopamine antagonists, that some of the pathways that we affect may lessen positive symptoms, but they also may worsen negative symptoms. People might feel more depressed, have less energy, um, be less creative, and so forth. And that 5-HT2C, if I understand correctly, if that's where it's at, it seems to, even though dopamine would be blocked in those areas by the antagonist, it seems to turn the dopamine on more in those areas uh, so that those pathways that need to stay more active mm -hmm. stay more active and the pathway that needs to be uh, uh, shut down more, that, that uh, ventral tegmental 
um, pathway is is more suppressed and I think that's what the thinking is but again it's been a while since I've looked at that and um, if you hear anybody that's a better expert than me which would be almost anybody <laughs> listen to them so how would this manifest so I think the idea is less negative symptoms and that mm -hmm. this 5-HT2C is associated with most of the second generation antipsychotic medications and I think there, there might be some people that would argue that is the fundamental characteristic of the second generation antipsychotics is that they have that 5-HT2 activity. Okay. And I think it's 5-HT2C, but again, it could be 5-HT2A. I know it's not 5-HT2B. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next medication on the list then. Oh, the, the thing to remember with aripiprazole in my mind is akathisia. Uh-huh. That was def... Is that one specifically uh, associated with aripiprazole, or is that just a class? It seems thing? to be. Yeah, if you look at the package insert, that the rate of akathisia can be fairly high, uh -huh. and um, it's it's always hard to know absolute rates, right? You can't really base that on what you see in in a population at one person or another because that's not the the entire population. But my recollection is that the rates of akathisia with aripiprazole are relatively high. Okay, and. Uh, well, there's some interesting things to aripiprazole, or not to aripiprazole, but to akathisia. And, and it does seem that some of the medications that have been studied in the last number of years, when they were given in the day, people had a higher, lot higher rates of akathisia, and the same medication given at night in double-blinded trials had a much lower rate of akathisia. So there might be something, some benefit to sleeping through akathisia, and that akathisia may be kind of, well, very similar among medications, but when it's dosed and maybe half-life factors might might cause akathisia to be differently experienced. Okay, yeah, because the way I seem to learn it, just akathisia is part of the whole family. It is definitely part of the whole family. Specifically, yeah. Abilify then. Abilify seems to have a little higher rates. Yeah, we seem to see that a little bit more. Okay. My memory tells me, and I don't know if one of you has the package insert up for Abilify, but my memory tells me that uh, somewhere around 25% of the people who are on Abilify may have akathisia. So, uh, next medication, though, also a partial antagonist. Uh, we have Bex, uh, Brexpiprazole. Brexpiprazole or Rexulti. This mm -hmm. is a relatively new medicine compared to the others. A lot of people um, probably inaccurately think that Brexpiprazole is just the same thing as aripiprazole, but it does seem to be a different medication and um, it doesn't seem to have the same amount of akathisia. Mm -hmm. This must be one of the newer medications then? Yeah, quite a bit newer. It's not on sketchy? Not on sketchy, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it has the FDA indication. It's not clear to me that I have a good sense of what to watch out for with this medication. It seems fairly tolerable. Mm -hmm. And again, if it's got a primarily um, augmentation of depression, which is a huge market, right? This is a huge, huge market. That's a lot bigger market than treatment of schizophrenia. Um, talking to primary care physicians who are doing augmentation with these different molecules, they'll have a better sense of how it's working than I do. Okay. Is Brexpiprazole one of the when you're reaching for an atypical antipsychotic, is it one of your go-tos, or do you not use it that much? So I use all of the medications. I think there's a place for every medication. Mm -hmm. um, it does seem that Brexpiprazole as a partial antagonist is a little bit gentler in terms of akathisia than aripiprazole. And uh, the, the titration is a little more complicated, I think. 
and uh, maybe people who use it enough stop worrying about titration, but I, I think there was enough worry about that alpha-1 activity initially that, um, that uh, and I'm not sure that it has a lot of alpha-1, but I think because it was a partial antagonist and following along in the footsteps, so to speak, of aripiprazole, a lot of people were worried about akathisia, and so they did a slower titration. They were also worried about orthostatic symptoms, and so they did a little bit slower titrations. And whether that's uh, necessary or not, I, I don't know, but that's what was done to get the FDA approval. The second part of that, though, is a is an is a little bit different question, and you know, is it a go-to? And and again, I, I think the true go-to is clozapine, right? It's it's the medication that you use when you don't think other things are working. Mm -hmm. um, but the difference maybe between aripiprazole and brexpiprazole that seems to be worth noting is that, as a partial antagonist, those molecules are already very tightly bound to the D2 receptor. Right? The question of binding is almost irrelevant when they're so tightly bound. Then the question becomes, well, how much are they an agonist and how much are they an antagonist? Mm -hmm. And there's some very interesting numbers that have been uh, looked at for schizophrenia and that you need, um, I, I want to say it's 60-something percent D2 occupancy to have a consistent antipsychotic effect from our molecules. Mm -hmm. And so the question then becomes is what amount of effective antagonism versus agonism do we have and it looks like um, even though brexpiprazole may be a little bit more gentle than aripiprazole in terms of akathisia it looks like it might be a little bit more potent in terms of the amount of net blockage that it has at the dopamine 2 receptor oh, for what it's worth that's a good thing Very good. yeah well at least that's the way i think i understand it if somebody knows differently um, there's certainly a place for comments and We'll fix things and we'll, we'll get it cleared up. Other things that we need to know about uh, brexpiprazole. I mean, it's not on sketchy, so you might get tested on it now, right? Uh, no. They're well. <laughs> <laughs> getting smarter. Not until it's 10 years old, right? <laughs> so take homes again. I guess one thing we've failed oh. to talk about is, is NMS. Oh, yeah, that's a pretty big one, isn't it? Mm hmm. Any, was there specific, I know that the specific warnings are in the package inserts. What I don't know is if there's a dose relationship between the medications and NMS. And my feeling is I, I don't think anybody wants to speculate on that and run the risk of that. Mm -hmm. But I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, well, it's a tricky topic, but at least for the purposes of school, it's important to be able to recognize it, recognize its symptoms. Um, it's very similar to malignant hyperthermia, mm -hmm. fever and status changes, rigidity, autonomic instability, and like malignant hyperthermia, dantrolene seems to be the treatment for it. So mm -hmm. as long as you know that, you'll be able to answer those. Very good. And withdrawal of the medication, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. I think one, uh, one important factor in helping to differentiate between malignant hyperthermia and uh, even uh, an exertional uh, heat stroke and and, uh, and then NMS would definitely be the encephalopathy component component to NMS. And you might see that with, you will see it less with malignant hyperthermia. And that's usually secondary to some type of medication, usually succinylcholine, I think. Uh -huh. but Context is important yeah. on this one. But. So as, as you're kind of navigating some of those question stems, just, you, you know, making sure that we're understanding kind of what context, clinical context, but then 
the the uh, you know having that encephalopathy component and their inability, the altered mental status could be another way to help kind of differentiate between some of those two. Is there differences in the CK between those conditions? Do you know? Uh, so CK condition would be high, or CK uh, would be elevated with NMS. In terms of uh, malignant hyperthermia, I, think so I believe well. it also is yeah. too because they both can cause. Yeah, it's that. It's that uh, the receptor in uh, in the malignant hyperthermia that's causing. Uh, the degeneration of the the protein and or, or muscle uh, components. So I think you're going to see elevation in both. Okay. All right. I, I, anything else that uh, you want to point out, Brandon, before we stop? Uh, no, I think we covered everything that I had. Very well done. Another uh, very well prepared podcast, and thank you very much. Thank On you. that note, team out. Team, team out. out.